agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this afternoon? Well, I'll tell you, I've been uh, out on the uh, the high seas of, of Lake Erie the past <laughs> couple days, and I'm uh, broadcasting from the lovely uh, Oasis Marina. Uh, so I'd like to say I'm I'm a lot like Gary Hart, but without the monkey business. Oh, very nice political reference. I I, I if, like it. And if any, yeah, hopefully some of our younger listeners uh, get that one. Look that one up. And, yeah, and look it up. There's pictures and everything. Picture. Yeah, absolutely. Find a picture. Well, you're doing a lot a lot better than I am, Jay. I I'm pretty much a mess. I uh, just had my first uh, COVID strength training, post COVID strength training workout, and uh, let's just say that went that went well. About as poorly as I expected, actually. But uh, and uh, as you know, Jay, listeners may not. Uh, every summer, uh, at least every non-COVID summer, my uh, my wife takes a extended international trip, and uh, she is on day two of twenty-four days in South Africa and Namibia, and so that means I am on my own, and it always feels just just awful, um, which is good because it would be concerning, you know, if your wife is gone for over three weeks and you feel some sense of, I don't know, relief or freedom or something like that. Yeah, but the first so, weekend should be sort of... the first. Well, the first few days, I just walk around in a daze, then the depression sets in, then the acceptance, and then she's back, and then, you know, it's all good to go. But, I, but the important thing is... I am here, yeah, diminished as I may be, but uh, we're ready to go. Um, and we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, so a, a more Dobbs stuff, of course. Uh, a big case, uh, uh, West Virginia versus EPA. The J. I know you have a strong personal interest in uh, Biden versus Texas. Another uh, case from the court's final week. Uh, maybe some general thoughts we have about the court and its term. The January sixth committee. Uh, so. Plenty of stuff for us to get to, and we're going to get to that in just one second. Okay, Jay, before we actually get to any of the stuff I mentioned, I want to open with a quick update. You'll recall, I'm sure, the last time we were on, I said I agreed with the majority in that Maine religious school funding case, but I also suggested that Maine could potentially pass an anti-discrimination law that would allow them to deny funding to any organization that discriminated based on gender or gender identity, right? Um, and you, I yeah, think you did suggest that. Yes. Well, it that turns, sounds like a good suggestion. Well, it turns out actually that Maine actually had preemptively passed just that sort of law in anticipation of the court's ruling. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that, but Maine and I, we were clearly on, on the same track. Great there. minds think alike. You know, there, there you go. Absolutely. So I just wanted to pass that along. So. All right. Well, let's talk more about Dobbs and the post-Dobbs environment. Of course, it's been two weeks now. We're recording this Friday afternoon since the Dobbs decision came out. And we still have a lot to discuss, which is, I think, hardly surprising given what a momentous decision it was. And just hours before we started recording today, President Biden signed an executive order related to abortion rights. And there's not really all that much that the Biden administration can do, of course, now that the, the court has ruled that abortion access decisions are 
basically the purview of the states. But he was under, I'd say, a fair amount of pressure to take some sort of formal action, even if it ends up being uh, largely, I guess, symbolic. Uh, But as for the order itself, it directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to identify potential actions to protect access to abortion and for HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra to report back to the administration in 30 days on those potential actions. And the order also includes directives to the Attorney General to take actions that might assist with legal representation for challenges to abortion restrictions and for the FTC to consider actions protecting the privacy of consumers who are looking for information about women's health services. In remarks to reporters before he signed this. uh, Old moves. Yeah, well, you know, when he was talking to reporters before this in the White House, Biden called the Dobbs decision terrible, extreme and totally wrongheaded, wrongheaded, sorry, and continued, for God's sake, there's an election in November. Vote, 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 vote. So, Jay. Vote. Don't vote four times. I don't think that was the point, but, right, right. you know, vote once. Right. Uh, <laughs> That's what we keep complaining about. Exactly. We've been complaining about all this time, yeah. Mike. But, but anyway, I, I know you, we, neither of us has had enough time to really carefully review this executive order, but do you have any initial impressions or thoughts about it? Well, my, my Im- impression, and again, my review is, is sort of limited to uh, what you just read to me, because um, uh, I am sort of on vacation this week. Um, but it seems to be largely symbolic, and it's a, hey, let's take a look, see what we can do, uh, which I think is all well and good. Uh, I mean, that's what any administration ought to do after a major Supreme Court uh, decision, and especially one that goes against what its policies uh, seem to be. Um, so we'll we'll see what, what they uh, they come up with. And, and my sense, uh, like yours, is, well, not a whole lot. The court said this is uh, an, a, an area reserved to the states. Uh, so there's not going to be a whole lot of, of room for the federal government to do anything um, uh, that would come close to legislation, as it were. Right. Um, I, I should I should I should take that back. I, I, administrative rules. Right. That would create uh, abortion exceptions. Uh, I think Congress could, of course, take up legislation. That's another issue um, that we're not there yet. But. Yeah, and um, I don't think we're going to be there with any kind of congressional legislation. And, you know, I think this potentially could help uh, some women kind of help in general at the margins. But but, yeah, it's just that the president is extraordinarily limited in what he's able to do here. All right. So, you know, we also want to, I think, finish a discussion that we couldn't finish last time. Uh, listeners, you might recall that Jay and I were debating that legislation passed by the House to basically uh, codify Roe into law. And I said at the time that it allowed for states to regulate or even ban abortion post viability. Uh, Jay wasn't sure if that was correct. And at the time, we didn't have the text of the bill in front of us. So we agreed that we would just not uh, necessarily just go by what we thought, but we'd check it out and come back with a definitive answer the next time. This is the next time. And as it turns out, the Women's Health Protection Act does, in fact, allow states to prohibit post-viability abortions. And if you're particularly curious about that, just check out Section 4A, Paragraphs 8 to 11 on that. So that's a kind of brief update. But, Mike, and there is a but. Okay, there is a but. Go ahead. I would would direct your attention to, uh, again, I don't have the the statute in front of me. but the the provision uh, says the the person um, performing the abortion 
uh, has at all times sort of the ability to make the call as far as uh, medical necessity. Or I'm I'm sorry, um, or the the whether whether it's yeah, I think that's that's the the right framing. Um, in which case, I think people could argue, and this is what conservatives have argued, that yes, a state could uh, say, listen, we are banning abortions uh, post-viability, but if you had a physician who says, listen, uh, I believe that the health of the mother uh, is is an issue here, uh, that would override that in, in all cases, meaning you could have these, you could have a restriction on the books, but I think it would be extremely difficult to enforce. Well, not necessarily. You're making some assumptions there, but I, and also I should point out that that, uh, that that also suggests then that under these very draconian abortion bans, that uh, a, a woman's life could be in in danger, and she would be forced to carry that uh, to carry that fetus or attempt to carry that fetus to term at the risk of her life. No, no, uh, because here's here's the thing, and this is where it gets into the legislative drafting, right? There are a lot of other bills that have been put forward where it talks about, uh, one, life of the mother as an exception. And that's clearly spelled out. There's, a, there's another sort of step back even further that says, listen, if it is, it is a, uh, will impair a substantial bodily function, those are the words that are typically used in a lot of these, these states, meaning there's going to be serious injury. Uh, and then there's the third, which is health, which has been defined really broadly to include all sorts of mental health uh, type type issues and and you know could be interpreted so broadly as to be meaningless, uh, and that's the concern I think on on the right is is it would the way I I believe the way the uh, congressional bill was drafted would give the abortion provider sort of total discretion to say uh, listen uh, I think the health now that may be mental health that may be so uh, just to be clear maybe something else if they lie it's, it's 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 not. What I'm saying is there's no objective determination. Uh, right. it, it comes down to the provider, and I that, think that's the it's a reasonable, that's my cause for concern. It's a reasonable point to raise, but it is but even if you know one one accepts that kind of interpretation of it, this is not an abortion on demand sort of uh, legislation. It's just I mean it's not it's just that I mean you can you can argue that it could be interpreted it could be used that way if physicians are willing to lie and courts are willing to accept those lies but what I am saying is that no, you it seems no, let's it, hold on it, let's let's hold on for a second here okay. I understand that it's very difficult to kind of go back 2 weeks but if we go back 2 weeks you suggested that this was a lot more than codifying Roe into law, and it was basic, would basically allow would, would not allow for any sort of state bans. And as it is written, that is just simply not the case. Now, I'm I'm willing to accept your argument that some people could try to manipulate the law and would have to, in many cases, lie to basically evade the, uh, if not the, well, the, I would argue the letter and the spirit of the law to grant women the right to have abortions when there's no serious health concerns. But that's not, that's different than saying this is just a, 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 a legislative abortion on demand sort of thing. And I think, no, I so think you I, should I, recognize no, that I, distinction. I agree with you on that, on that okay. point. Okay. I would say that legislatively as written, yes, there can be um, uh, limits placed. Uh, what I'm suggesting is in practice, I think it could still offer abortion on demand. Okay, that's. Uh, that, I think that's a. That, that's a. Uh, well, I'll use the word reasonable. <laughs> no, you disagree with the reading. Yeah. Oh, well, here's. Let me. Let me. Let me. Uh, explain. So, uh, for example, 
in some states, um, you can uh, take uh, marijuana, uh, provided that you have some medicinal reason for doing so. Uh, and you need to get a, a doctor to say, listen, this person has a health issue uh, that would require treatment uh, by inhaled marijuana use. Um, it turns out those doctors aren't too hard to find. Right. I, I would and suggest I the, that the there's argument could yeah. be made if, if someone if a doctor is if there is someone who is their practice is is abortion. Uh, I suspect they will also have a fairly low hurdle to get over to say, listen, I think the health of the mother requires the abortion. See, I, I see what you're saying, but I would That's say not, I would say probably I'm not, I'm not, I, not I would say probably not. I don't think you have to lie. I think you just have to say because health could be so broad. And, and I guess that would have to be judicially interpreted, basically. No, as I read the statute, it wouldn't. I mean, as I read the statute, the court would have to defer to the provider. Oh, because the court would be willing to do that. Wow. It's an interesting world. Well, no, you live I'm, in, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying the court would be willing, willing or not. I think that's that's what the statute says. I don't think the court. The, I don't think the statute of, yeah. says that the court has to defer to the provider on what constitutes health. I think, like in any sort of statutory interpretation, the court is free to interpret words in statutes as it chooses to interpret them. And certainly, uh, the courts have not been shy in doing this. We've seen this this last term with our activist conservative Supreme Court. So I don't think there's going to be this an is, issue with is that. This is something, and again, you're 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 catching me because I'm on. Uh, like I said, uh, uh, ship to shore here. Um, and I think we should. I should stop for a second a to look, say. I, I, I actually, I actually think it's a defined, uh, a defined term in the statute that says, uh, "Health of the mother shall be determined by the provider." Okay, and well, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't. Well, I, I do not have it. I do not have it up in front of me. But why don't we? We're just completely. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of got a little bit far afield. Why don't we say that uh, it's at least as the statute is written, it is not guaranteeing any sort of or, or codifying any sort of abortion on demand up to the point of conception sort of regime. I think we can agree on that. Correct. As okay. as written, uh, my concern is in practice it could allow something that is is really broader than what uh it it could it could render those state restrictions illusory okay fair fair enough i uh I and, and, all, and I, also i I, sh I i should note it would prohibit any other uh state limitations on abortion other than abortion so for example parental consent cases or parental consent statutes uh obviously those aren't part of roe uh but they would be prohibited under the legislation. Right. Absolutely. And one could sort of, well, anyway, that's a whole nother issue, but, and we could probably have a whole, uh, well, anyway, we won't go right, there. Right. We've already kind of gone well, down. So things like parental consent or the, you know, providing information or providing the sonogram or, or all those types of, uh, you know, waiting periods, all, all those other types of uh, uh, legislative pieces out there that have been, been thrown around over the years. Um, to restrict choice would yeah, absolutely. would be yeah would would not be allowed under the the federal yeah uh, bill like I said so that what growth. I'm saying is that would go that is is in in some cases broader certainly broader than what what Roe or Casey well it it be says on its face broader than Casey not broader than Roe I would argue but maybe that's a some yeah, fine yeah. distinctions there all right yeah um no that, that's good. 
So uh, moving on to one other thing that we mentioned the last time is I wanted to give everyone an update on that constitutional amendment idea that I mentioned. I said that if there was sufficient support, if a lot of people got in touch and said, you know, I'd like you to do this, I would, in fact, do that. And there really was a, a an outpouring of support. A lot of people were very encouraging and a lot of people shared their stories and their, their, their enthusiasm. Um, and so I actually have put together my first draft and it's up there on the uh, Discord, our Patreon supporter Discord, Discord, if you want to check that out. And uh, I will be regularly updating that and listening to feedback and, you know, making some alterations based on that. And I'll also try to give folks occasional updates as sort of events merit here on, on the podcast. If that's something you're interested in taking an active role in. It's right there on the Patreon supporter uh, Discord for you. So, all right. Um, Moving on to new stuff, Jay, I thought we could get into an aspect of this that we haven't discussed to this point, and that is, do states have the authority to ban medical abortion drugs that have been approved by the FDA? This is something that's come up of late. And, you know, it's an important question, of course, because that two-drug combination approved by the FDA accounts for over half of all abortions performed in the United States. And President Biden has promised to protect women's right to obtain these FDA-approved drugs. And Attorney General Garland has said the states can't ban the drugs, in his words, based on disagreement with the FDA's expert judgment about safety and efficacy. Now, there's not a lot of legal history to go on here that's at least directly on point. There's one 2014 case where a federal district judge uh, rejected a, a Massachusetts emergency ban of, uh, of this opiate, uh, opioid Zohydro, I believe it was, citing the supremacy clause. But this is a pretty new field, essentially. So, Jay, I wanted to get your take on this. My sense is uh, a state could uh, ban these these drugs. But this is kind of the flip side of, of the Women's Health Reproduction Act. Uh, if they were to ban them, I think that would be almost impossible to enforce. Um, I think I think under the, the FDA's rules, I think there is sort of the um, federal preemption in terms of health and safety. So I don't think you could make the argument saying, listen, we're banning these drugs because we don't think they're safe. Um, uh, but uh, or or we're requiring additional medical, you know, appointments or something, you know, before you can get these drugs. Uh, I, I think that would be. Uh, uh, a step, a, a stretch too far. Um, but I think they could say, listen, uh, we're reading the current, we're reading Dobbs to say, we believe there is uh, incipient life uh, uh, immediately upon fertilization and prior to uh, implantation, uh, which is, you know, typically how these, these drugs operate. Uh, that is, that is uh, a state interest that we can protect. Um, now I think you, you still have to get over like a rational basis test hurdle there. Right. Um, and there's probably a good argument to be had, uh, on, on that, um, whether there's, you know, that meets the rational basis standard, but most things do right. meet the rational yeah. basis standard. Pretty low bar. So I, I think, yeah, I think the state, uh, probably could enact a ban, um, that said, I don't know how they would enforce it. See, I, I, what I was wondering here is that even if we accept the preemption argument, which I do here, is that, uh, you know, we, it could leave us with a situation where, OK, the state can't ban the drug itself, but it can still prosecute any doctor who 
up performs an abortion and to perform by prescribing that drug, you are performing an abortion. So it's not banning the drug. It's just saying that, well, a doctor can prescribe it for an abortion. But then like in Mississippi, then, you know, it's uh, between one to 10 years in prison, a fine of up to $25,000 and loss of medical license. So I don't think doctors in these states are going to be lining up to prescribe these, you know, these pills. Yeah, but, but online doctors will. Sure. And that's that's the whole issue. I, mean, of, yeah, the exactly. I think the prescriptions, uh, much like, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, I mean, as, as you can. I don't know about your your uh, Facebook feed, Mike, but but mine is filled with um, ads <laughs> yeah. for various <laughs> male enhancement prescription type uh, things. Not that, that I, I, Not I that would need them. No, but, no, no, no. Um, but no, that, you know, again, it's sort of an online consultation. Um, uh, which, which I think it's sort of the question is, oh, you know, do you have thinning hair? Well, well, yes. Uh, then, okay, there you go. Um, so I, I think, I think that would be, uh, pretty easily doable. Right. Uh, and just like you, you know, said, really a, hard. And to... I, and again, I don't see any mechanism that the state could somehow intercept that. Uh, right. If it goes through, you know, if these drugs are sent through the federal mail system, um, that sort of thing. I. So it would be I, I so it would be incredibly easy to evade, basically, for anyone who has yeah. access to telemedicine services. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I and I so I I, I don't think um, or or the other question is right. Um, the drugs could be prescribed for other purposes. Um, I guess presumably you sort yeah. of have you have your loophole there, right? Um. So yeah, you know, yeah, I, 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 I don't. I, I, and, and to me, it, it seems it seems to me if, if you're if you're the the right on this, uh, if you are the, the right to life uh, side, I'm really really arguing hard on this. Um, I think this is a, a battle you don't win. Um, just just from the persuasion moral moral piece of it, right? Um, and and that's that's almost you know sort of why I think where where the country is going, and and hopefully would end up. Uh, right, because there, there is. It's a very difficult philosophical line to draw to say, well, does life begin at conception? Uh, and a lot of people, um, myself included, it's it's a hard to say. Well, look, is this is this little microscopic uh, bundle of cells a human being? Um, that's that's a, a tough question. Uh, when you have that that question at whatever twenty four weeks. Uh, is this this organism that you can feel kicking in inside of, of of the mother in a heartbeat and you know see moving around and it looks like us is that a human being? Um, I think the the answer to most people give to that is was hell yeah, uh, and I think that's that's sort of where so many people are on abortion right they they would agree that there ought to be some right to abortion but it ought to be early in the process be be you know, the the further away that the fetus appears to be, uh, you know, like a, a human being. And that's that's a tough that's a really tough line to draw. But I think it's 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 easier on the e edges. Right. Sure. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, some people might say on this, on the drug issue that, well, there are instances where states are allowed to impose stricter regulations than the federal government. The main one that people probably think about is California's auto emission standards, but they have a waiver that allows them to do that. Now, you could conceivably see uh, a, a Republican controlled House and Senate kind of allowing for a, a waiver uh, either legislatively or a Republican president administration granting states a waiver to impose tighter standards on that. And I assume that would be that would be challenged. But uh, I would expect that that could potentially stand. So uh, with any we, we, we might see something like that. Certainly, I would I would expect the president DeSantis to attempt to do something like that. But uh, with any luck that I won't find out um, anyway. So. Another thing, Jay, that we haven't discussed to this point are potential abortion protections in state constitutions. You know, I remember you not too long ago mentioned state constitutions contain rights that exceed what we find in the U.S. Constitution. A lot of people don't really recognize that, right? Um, Yeah, and, and they do. Yeah, and currently there are 11 states that have held that their state constitution protects abortion rights. Now, I can't just say 11 states without naming them. You, you want to know, right? They're Ala- yeah, what states are those, Mike? Oh, uh, they're very good. Alaska, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Montana, Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Florida. So there are a couple of these states that are not, you know, liberal bastions or anything like yeah. that, right? And so – go ahead. So my, my quick question would be, and I know you're not going to have the answer to this, uh, but – uh, are, have those states found an independent um, right to abortion in their state constitutions? I do uh, have an answer. Or is it a matter of their sort of a, a ride along of the, well, look, our due process amendment uh, is interpreted the same as the federal due process amendment, meaning um, if the federal law changes, then theoretically so could that, that state constitution, as opposed to other states where they're specifically saying Beside whatever you have in the federal constitution, you have an independent separate right under the state constitution. I actually do have an answer for you to that. Uh, oh, to you, oh wow. And it's, it's a mix. You are really prepared. It, I, you know, every yeah. once in a while. It, it is actually a mix. There are some where it's a more clearly stated right, right, and then there's another one where it's found under a general right to privacy or bodily autonomy or something like that. So it, it's, uh, it depends on the state. And I don't have the breakdown by state. But I can tell you that in Florida, for instance, there's currently a legal battle over this because a state judge initially put a halt to their recent 15-week abortion ban for violating the state constitution, but that injunction was then automatically lifted through a provision in Florida state law that stays the judge's order when the state attorney general appeals the ruling. So it's kind of in flux in Florida and in Kansas in early August, I think it's August 2nd, they're going to, the citizens will vote on an amendment to their state's constitution that would remove that fundamental right to an abortion, which would, you know, then allow them to restrict and currently in Kansas, abortions are allowed until 22 weeks. So there's definitely been some action in the more conservative states that have those protections to, to look into scaling them back. And also in some of those states, those protections were, were interpreted by the state Supreme Courts that were somewhat more uh, liberal. And those courts have, many of those courts have become more conservative. And so I expect we're going to see within the next couple of years, it will be maybe, it might not be fewer than 11 states, but if we see more states have 
these protections state constitutions. I think they're going to be states that legislatively already had protections and were primarily uh, left to center states. Probably. Um, but and, and I think it's probably difficult to. For for states, unless it's a, a new amendment that they're passing, uh, and I suppose it depends on on the, the language used in in you know their specific state constitution whether you can sort of pull a rower Casey on that too, or if you're engaging in the same um, you know willy nilly uh, a substantive due process type analysis. Now that said, look if if a state supreme court wants to do that with its state constitution um that's really up to the the people of, of that state right i think that's a um i mean it's it's a different it's a different um a different situation than having uh nine people make yeah. the decision for the nation and that would in theory be unreviewable at the federal level assuming it's based yeah on, I, I would on, think so yeah. now they could you could you could petition um something like you know, for, you know, if, if if there's some argument to say, uh, listen, this provision in the state constitution or this uh, uh, state Supreme Court's interpretation of the um, state constitution violates the federal constitution. Uh, you know, it, it's theoretically the Supreme Court could take cert. Um, that said, Dobbs didn't say there is a definitive right to life that begins at X, right? Uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't see that in the cards, right? As opposed to if um, a state say passed a state constitutional amendment say banning guns or something like that, well then yeah. there would be a federal challenge because there is a exactly. there is an affirmative right to bear arms. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, you know, uh, there. I mean, it's possible certainly for some states to kind of get around their legislatures through initiatives, though that's uh, only around half of states actually have that process, and it, it varies a whole, you know, a whole lot from from state to state. But my, my sense of things, and I know we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, was that at the state level, and in some states at least, there might be considerable public support for uh, uh, constitutional amendments or or at least legislation that would have some sort of a uh, moderate sort of right to, uh, you know, right to choose a sort of sort of thing. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of that in the next in the next year or two, is my sense. I think it's going to take a little longer than that. Maybe so. Um, yeah. I think what you'll get first are our dueling amendments. Mm. Right. Yeah, that makes on, sense. On, yeah. either, on yeah. either extreme. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I, I and and that's unfortunate, but I, I think that I, that's just how I see it playing out. Just because there's no while while there's a big constituency, there's a big lot of votes to be had in the middle. Um, I, I don't see the launching pad, uh, other than what you suggested a couple of weeks ago, um, that you're going to take charge of this. Absolutely, um, it's happening. It's the launching happening. pad also requiring money uh, to do this. To say a a here is a. Um, uh, uh, you know, here here is a reasonable compromise. Um, it's really tough to get votes for it's it's. Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, because yeah. it was it was Mr. Miyagi who said, uh, "Left side of the road, good. Uh, right side of the road, good. Middle of the road, no good." Yeah, 
Yeah, it's, sometimes so. it sure feels that way. But, uh, you know, I, I, I want to throw, actually, I have, I have, I have a, a new take or a new idea. It's, it's, I think it's interesting. It's, it's kind of out there a little bit. I wanted to get your take on it. Um, uh, so let me kind of explain it here. So the Fifth Amendment's takings clause reads for, for listeners who don't have the takings clause memorized, <laughs> that's right. Uh, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, for a lot of small government conservatives, that they're big fans of the takings clause, and they've argued for all sorts of expansive understandings of what constitutes a taking. So here's my argument. If anything is private property, it's a person's own um, person. And so a state regulation that denies that person full use of their self and, in fact, requires that their self be put into the service of, of the state's interest in seeing a fetus come to term, well, th- that sure sounds like a taking to me, at least under one interpretation. And if so, then the state could be required to, well, justly compensate women for the costs associated with an unwanted pregnancy, things like doctor visits, prenatal vitamins, you know, uh, lost wages, sick days, I mean, anything that can reasonably be connected to the pregnancy. And, and, and you know, I think this, this addresses that question a lot of people on the left have about whether or not conservatives who are clearly very eager to end a woman's right to choose will be anywhere close to as eager to help provide for women who are undergoing these unwanted state-mandated pregnancies. Uh, so that's my kind of crazy idea. I scoured the Constitution, right? Uh, well, I wanted to get your take on that, Jay. So um, I, don't, I don't know that there's any case law out there talking in terms of taking, uh, in terms of someone's uh, physical body, right? I mean, usually, usually that's in, in terms of, you know, you're being put in jail or something like that. Um, or, or it's a 13th Amendment argument, which uh, uh, the original Roe court actually threw in there, um, essentially saying that by being forced to carry a, a child to term, uh, the, the state is, is requiring involuntary servitude. Um, now, I, I think I think that's if you look at the history of the Thirteenth Amendment uh, and what it was for. I think that reading's just kind of kind of ludicrous. Um, the Fifth Amendment—that's a little—that's a little trickier, isn't it? You know, private I, property. I I, I, you have I a brought it up. Property right in your. Well, you know, I brought it up to Ken, and he yeah. mentioned that under the law, human bodies aren't typically seen as property in the sense that property yeah. is typically defined as something that can be bought or sold or leased and that sort of thing. And so there is a yeah, property is typically turned as there is a bundle of rights, right, of property that you kind of you have the right to hold it and sell it and exclude others from its use and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, of course, even if somebody accepted this argument, it wouldn't prohibit abortion bans. It would just simply require that the state actually. Compensation. A, exactly. And so maybe I'm maybe I'm drawn to it, Jay, because it's kind of more of a middle way sort of thing, you know, and, and I don't know. But but, yeah, I recognize that it's not a there are some issues with the argument, but I think, you know, it has some merit and it's at least maybe logically consistent. I don't know. So there, well, there's also a line of cases out there where a lot of courts just on, on the basis of public policy have banned uh, what are called wrongful life suits. Um, so it, it's a, uh, so for example, if, if there is an abortion that does not uh, end with an aborted fetus, 
and the child is carried to term. Uh, can you sue someone for um, the lifetime of that child? Interesting. Okay, uh, I see what you're saying. And and most case, courts have said no. That there's no there's no wrongful life. Right. Right. I um, got it. Uh, so, um, and again, I, I don't have all those in front of me. Uh, but again, it's, it's just sort of a. It's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird legal argument, right? And I don't, it certainly wouldn't go anywhere with this court, but I was just kind of interested in it sort of occurred to me, you know, uh, but, uh, but, but, but yeah. So, you know, one other thing I wanted to uh, do is sort of respond to Trey and Ken's episode from last week, because when they were discussing Dobbs, I, I wasn't I wasn't really surprised, but they both ended up arguing for what I would call sort of a living constitution position in that they agreed that not only are there unenumerated rights that are protected in the constitution. I mean, that's explicitly stated in the text, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. You can't disagree with that, it but enumerates it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But they also agreed basically that those unenumerated rights don't necessarily need to be deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the country to be recognized. And it could just sort of be, this is, this is, this is where I sort of lose the thread, if you will, because I understand the argument, right? And, and, and a lot of people in the last couple of weeks have said, well, of course, the framers of the 14th Amendment didn't intend this to be to cover women because they were all men and, you know, they were people of their times and, and you know, 19th century men with the, the typical prejudices of their time, right? But uh, But even though I understand that argument, I really fundamentally disagree with Trey and Ken on this. Um, and I'm, I'm betting you do as well, right? Oh, I do. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> and because, and I guess for me, and probably for you as well, is that, you know, I say, well, if we, if, if we're looking for the source of these unenumerated rights, if it's not things that are, to, to use Justice Alito's phrase, uh, deeply rooted in history and traditions, well, then my question is naturally, what's the standard and who gets to decide, right? And that's where I think you run into problems, because if you just say, well, I guess the court, right, that that leaves me feeling incredibly uneasy. I expect. Right. That. And that's that's the the inherent problem that that so many uh, conservatives uh, and particularly Justice Thomas uh, sees in substantive due process uh, arguments is is that what you're saying is you have all the rights enumerated in the Constitution. Uh, plus whatever policy preferences the court happens to to uh, be into at, right. at any given time. Yeah. I mean, because you can't just simply say, well, there aren't enumerated rights because there there are. But there needs to be a stable standard that sort of that that makes it difficult for activist judges to impose their preferences on on the country. And uh, 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 substantive due process, says it ain't that. Right. And so. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. And I think if if you're looking at when the Constitution was drafted, let's look first at when the Constitution was drafted, and then when the Fourteenth Amendment was drafted. Uh, but the the big concern with uh, that that the founders had, uh, Madison and uh, in particular in in drafting the, the Bill of Rights and including that unenumerated uh, rights, was exactly as it says that the the fact that these rights are unenumerated does is not to disparage uh, their existence. Um, and that sort of presupposes existence at the time, right? That that the founders are saying, "Listen, here are the rights that the federal government absolutely cannot cannot take. Um, 
we're not going to list all of them. And just because we may have left some out uh, doesn't mean they don't exist. Uh, but I don't think you can read from that and you can just make up other rights. Yeah. Maybe the if they were doing it again, they would have said some. They would have given the courts a little guidance in terms of how to find those rights, you know. But uh, it's first drafts are well, always. It, you know, it, it, I mean, in, in fairness, I, they didn't really have to, right? Because this whole idea of substantive due process wasn't a thing then, right? Um, they had, you know, there were common law rights that everyone understood, and the sort of the rights of Englishmen, and you know, rights going back to the Magna Carta. Uh, and so many of these had already been been put in place in state constitutions uh, or just in state practice. Right. Um, uh, the, the, there's there's actually this is this is an interesting um, Fifth Amendment thing. So there is uh, a lot of the Fifth Amendment uh, does not say this, but there is a, a strain of cases uh, and again goes way, way back and, and finds its roots in the Magna Carta saying that, look, yes, a state can take uh, uh, land for public use, proper pro private property for public use. Um, but implicit in that is that that public use must be as limited and narrow as needed for the actual public use. Um, that came up a couple times. There's an Ohio Supreme Court case uh, that was sort of the answer to the um, uh, – oh, gosh, I'm forgetting the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court case that, that said you a – a, a city could take land and then sell it to a developer. I know the one you're talking about. Um, yeah. Yeah. That one. So, um, yeah, in um, uh, the the uh, Ohio version, and this is, again, an example of where a state constitution is different from a federal constitution. Uh, the, the, the state Supreme Court said, well, no, it, the case was Norwood uh, versus Horney. Um, and uh, uh, so it said, no, under our Constitution, you cannot do that. It has to be as narrow as possible or as narrow as, as is needed for the actual public use. So you can't just say a public use saying, hey, let's get this property because I bet we can sell it to somebody <laughs> yeah, for more. Right. It's it's we need this much property uh, because we need this right of way to build this road today. Um, and and that you're not going to find that in, in the, the Constitution, but you will find it as one of those well-established rights that, look, this is how everybody thought of uh, takings, uh, you know, at the time. Um, so, yeah, I'm just pointing that out that, look, that could be one of those unenumerated rights, or it's sort of a gloss on an enumerated right, um, that I think the founders certainly would have said, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but abortion, uh, they would not have seen as, and, and you know, there's, there's also, I've seen this, this strain of argument, um, which troubles me a little bit from, from historians, right. You're saying, listen, well, that there were, um, uh, abortion did occur, you know, back in colonial times and at the, the, the times of the founding and there, there may or not have been statutes uh, explicitly prohibiting it. Um, yes, but that's not the test. The test isn't, was it specifically a pro uh, prohibited, the test is: Was that right specifically uh, recognized? Yeah, it's a different, uh, a different animal. Yeah. 
All right. So, you know, one final thing before we move off uh, of Dobbs, at least for now, is we wanted to respond to some listener questions uh, concerning Dobbs and, and related issues. So we're going to start with Timmy from Twitter. He was wondering how we feel about calls to reconsider Loving versus Virginia. Um, according to and Loving versus Virginia was the, the, the interracial marriage yeah. uh, case in 67, 68, anyway, late 60s. According to one report, uh, actually, Senator Mike Braun from Indiana initially said he'd be open to the court overturning that decision, though he later uh, clarified or walked back. Or you want to look at his initial remarks on that. And I know a lot. I, of- I was going to say, is anyone really seriously considering challenging in that and and who and how? Well, yeah, and that that's the point I wanted to make is that because there's a reason why Justice Thomas didn't cite that case in his concurrence. And it's not because he is in an interracial marriage as some people, I think, maybe initially thought it's because Loving is actually different from the other cases he cited because it's based primarily on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and not the Due Process Clause. So that's why yeah, I think you would agree with me on that, that that's not going to go anywhere. Yes. Uh, now, now there is. So Loving is a little bit of a, a weird hybrid in that there is uh, equal protection and also kind of throws in the a little bit due process yeah. stuff. But it was as well. But you can get so you can it, kind of get there. there. But yeah. you, exactly, you can get there on equal pro, um, equal protection alone. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, and finally, and, and I guess I guess the other question is, you know, how would would uh, someone challenge that? How would how would that happen? Um, I mean, is there a movement in any state legislature out right. there? Yeah. To say, hey, we're going to ban interracial marriage. Uh, and then someone would have to challenge that statute, and then the court would say, yes, the statute stands. Yeah, that um, would be difficult. I just to, don't see that yeah. happening at all. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an excellent uh, And the, the same goes, and this is this sort of the same argument for even the other, uh, for Griswold and other um, uh, privacy-related cases. There's never been a, a legislative or a, a, a popular drumbeat of, uh, oh, my God, we've got to do something about uh, people getting contraception, right? We've got to ban this. Now, again, I suppose in, in certain religious circles, um, uh, there are people who believe that. Uh, but there's there's not been anywhere near, uh, you know, no one you you haven't seen any marches against contraception. Uh, there is no, um, you know, uh, there may have know, been some, but uh, there's certainly no state legislative activity going on. Exactly. About that um, significant. You're not you're not seeing it uh, today. And, and likewise, with the interracial marriage, uh, I would think it, it there is there is no serious. Um, push uh out there to to do that so that and technically if there's not a live controversy then the court won't hear the case though not always when we when we talk about west virginia versus epa maybe we'll get into that a little bit but in this case it's not even close so yeah so, all right. Um, and then finally, Eric, one of our Patreon supporters, writes, uh, I'd like to know what Jay thinks this judicial decision does to the country. I see us on a path to further division with maybe more states figuring the great experiment has failed and we should just go our separate ways. Are we on a path to becoming like Europe with little country states? I really feel like the differences are getting bigger to the point that that might that many beliefs and faiths are different enough from some fellow states that I don't want to be associated with them anymore. An emotional response for sure, but like all emotions, you bury them long enough, things will explode, usually violently. The Civil War has shown us that. Are we overdue? So, Jay, was directed specifically to you. Um, yes, of course. Um, no, I don't think we're we're heading that way. Actually, I think 
this case, um, you know, it's it's going to, it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I think it gets better. Uh, and and the way it gets better is is partly through uh, one education about what the court does and what the court doesn't do. Uh, I think a lot of of you know so much of of what I've seen on my newsfeed and what you see on the news is there is this idea that the court just grants rights or takes rights away and and that's that's their their job. Uh, I think you know especially this term of of the Supreme Court is kind of turning the court back to normalcy and sort of a normalcy that it hasn't seen since probably the late sixties. Um, and and I, I think that is on balance a good thing. Um, you know, I've, I've said this before, regardless on of your, your policy feelings uh, on something like abortion, uh, if you want to protest, you ought to be out there protesting at the state house, right? Not protesting in front of the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and, and I think that's what's going to happen. And there's going to be initially, I think there's there there are going to be the, the two extremes, right? There are going to be some states that try to go real hard one way or the other. Uh, I, I think that that will will fade away um, after a couple of years. And especially if if we do have a situation where the uh, abortifacients are are plentiful and easy to get. Right. If that's the, the vast majority of abortions that are now that, that do occur in the country are those early ones uh, and they're done by pill um, that that takes a lot of the, the wind out of the sails of the, the pro-life movement, because I do think it's just a it's a, the, the farther the closer back you get to conception, the more difficult the argument for restrictions becomes. And that's not a, a constitutional thing anymore. Right. Even to, I'm just saying as a political persuasiveness argument um it, it's sort of the argument that the Roe court made and, and i think that's it's it's that's kind of like the right argument to have it's just it shouldn't have been the court having it it should be the legislature well i i tend to think that things are going to get worse before they get better if they get better and i'm far less sanguine about their getting better uh than than you are i can easily envision a scenario maybe not quite as uh quite as negative quite as horrific as what eric sort of sketches out but certainly something where three to four to five years from now things are we, we look back at the relative calm of 2022 that would not surprise me at all as i you know, look back from my from my porch in whatever Montevideo or something like that, and say, "Wow, I got up just in time." Uh, look what DeSantis is doing. But I hope I'm wrong about that. I say that about a lot. I always mean it. So we will we will see. Okay, let's move on to something different. You know, our primary focus in, on the show the last few weeks has been on Dobbs. But there were a number of other important decisions that followed it. And one of particular interest to hear on the show was West Virginia versus EPA. Jay is intimately familiar with this case because I am. Yeah, he, he wrote one of the amicus briefs to the court. So he knows this sucker backwards and forwards. And so given that, it really seems only fitting that he kind of take the reins here and kind of give us a sort of background. And we can kind of get into our discussion on the court's ruling. On and, this and yeah, and they, they totally bought it, Mike. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no, this this case had to do with uh, the Obama administration's uh, clean power plan, uh, and it's 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 the facts are sort of convoluted, uh, <laughs> to say the least. 
to say the least. Now, if you try to read the opinion, right? I mean, you got to wade through like 50 pages of stuff um, talking about these various regulations and what they seek to regulate um, uh, before you you get to even sort of the meat of the legal stuff. So I will break it down as simply as I can in that before the clean power plan, President Obama's clean power plan, uh, regulation was typically uh, within the fence is what was the term that was used, meaning the EPA could regulate uh, power plant emissions. They could say you can only put out this much uh, uh, carbon dioxide. You can only put out this much uh, uh, whatever other other um, to a specific uh, plant. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And, and and that that the idea was this is how we we govern emissions is we tell the plants how much they can emit um uh, and the and the conditions under which they can emit it like or you can do this but you have to have these scrubbers and so forth and it has to be between down to this many uh, uh you know particles per per uh million or billion you know. or yeah yeah exactly it can set those standards but they're all standards on the plant so the the uh, clean power um plan though went outside the fence and said, listen, the EPA can also regulate anything else that relates to emissions uh, that would cause more emissions from the plant. Uh, so, for example, the, the EPA could uh, uh, place limits, theoretically, on your gas stove, uh, on your car, uh, on a small business that, that you know, uses carbon on your fireplace. On It was a, a much broader um, uh, uh, scope than had ever, ever been seen before. Uh, now, then, this is where it gets kind of procedurally complicated, is these rules get held up by the court, uh, at which point um, uh, then uh, President Biden, or uh, President, Biden, uh, President Trump uh, is elected, and he cans the whole thing. And replaces so, okay, it, right, enough. with something like the free energy choice plan or something yes. like that, yeah. Pollute so all you that, want, plan. That, that happens, yeah. and again, that then that gets held up, installed. So basically, we have sort of a nothing happening, and then uh, President Biden comes in and says, "Okay, I'm re-upping or or renewing with the the Obama Clean Power Plan." Well, well let me stop you there because actually, the there. Yeah, let me ahead. stop yeah. you there because the Biden administration has yeah. said that they are actually instituting their own plan, and they do not plan to reinstate the uh, the. Obama administration's clean power plan, and that actually becomes an important element of the case, yes. at least to the three dissenters. So go ahead. Sorry. Yes. So so that's that's where we are, right? And it's it's this weird sort of thing of the on the one hand, the EPA is is seeking this authority to say, um, oh listen, we have this authority under the clean power plan, these rules are are legit. And at the same time they're saying, but no, 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 we're not we're not actually proposing any rules under them at this point. Uh, we're just saying, well, we, we could if we wanted to, um, uh, which then brings us to the, the standing question, uh, right? So West Virginia then sues and says, uh, no, these are these are onerous. These are outside your, your uh, scope of authority as granted by Congress. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, one of the arguments, and this is the argument that, that you've picked up on, is, is standing, is, listen, if this is... Uh, nothing's happened yet if there aren't any real rules pending uh does west virginia have the authority uh or the the standing uh, as a party to is there a case or controversy um for it to sue over and uh the 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 
the majority essentially said, well, yes, yes, there is, because there's this, um, uh, you know, what, what we've got is, is the question is not a specific rule, but the authority of, of the EPA to, uh, to promulgate those rules. Yeah, I don't know. Sounds like an advisory opinion to me, but yeah, go ahead. Well, no, and, no, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you quite honestly, um, in, in writing the amicus brief, um, this was difficult for me. Um, because usually what you, <laughs> you like to do um, is to be able to point to something concrete that the other side is doing or is about to do. Right. Uh, to say, listen, can you believe what these, you know, these knuckleheads are doing? Uh, uh, they're they're, you know, they're going to regulate your your uh, gas grill. They're going to all these kind of things. And the EPA's response was, what? We're not. No, no. We, but so there's a little bit of pardon the pun, gaslighting going on from the EPA uh, also in saying that. Well, no, we're not actually saying we're going to do any of these things. We're just saying we could do them if we wanted to. Um, and that's that's there and there and we get to the the uh, the decision um, in which the the court uh, the majority six uh, three case says, listen, this this comes down to what's called the major questions doctrine, and it sort of gave gave a spotlight to the major questions doctrine, and that's something that's been talked about in other cases. But usually not front and center, right? I think usually yeah, it was the, the the first time on. that it was actually explicitly invoked by the court. So now it's like the a major questions doctrine and all. Now it's capitalized. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um. Uh, so, but no, it it had been it had been there in other cases, but it usually sort of uh, accompanies a, a a sort of well, that's too much deference type. Argument. Yeah, I like I like um, how Roberts put so it, it in it that. Was, no, sort of used to be sort of a variation on the too much deference, right? Now, I think Roberts put it really well in his opinion. He said that the, the, the major questions doctrine, he said it addresses, his words were, a particular and recurring problem, agencies asserting highly consequential power beyond what Congress could reasonably be understood to have granted, which I think is a really nice summary of what yeah. it's all about. And, 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 and look, I think on the merits, setting aside the standing question, yeah. right, on the merits, I think that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, me too. Uh, this is taking a, a 70-year-old law that has never been interpreted or read as broadly as the EPA was proposing to read it, um, even if they really weren't going to use that power. Um, uh, and, and it also goes back to the, and I, gosh, I wish I could quote the case. I should have this committed to memory, but the Scalia quote uh, of uh, that, that uh, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes, uh, meaning if, if there is a big gargantuan power, uh, if, if Congress meant to empower the EPA uh, to regulate every aspect of any sort of greenhouse gas emitted by anyone, anywhere, uh, even um, uh, sort of e externally, right? You're going to use so much electricity that that translates into more emissions, so we can therefore regulate your your uh, uh, your air conditioning usage or something. Um, that look, Congress is going to say so specifically. And and in this case, they they did not. Yeah, and, and um, I should say what I always try to do in these cases before I read the commentary or analysis or, or even you know the, the opinions is I try to look at the actual statute 
uh, radical idea, yeah. right? And, and actually, I when I read Section 7411 of the Clean Air Act, which is the one in, in question, it, it gives the EPA the authority to regulate emissions from stationary sources, and that's clearly defined as any building structure, facility, or installation which emits or may emit any air pollutant. But that's a these are individual sources, not industries or the environment in general. And so to me, on the merits, this is a really easy case. And, you know, I I agree with Roberts again when he says capping uh, CO2 emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day, but only Congress or an agency with express authority from Congress can adopt a decision of such magnitude and consequence. And I think, yeah, that's that's exactly yeah. what I would that's have written if I were more eloquent. For years. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with that, though I would have actually sided with the dissenter simply because I don't think that there's a live controversy here. And it sounds like you don't, you don't, you wouldn't necessarily have a whole lot of issue with that. You can see a reasonable person deciding. Well, again, that wasn't my uh, argument to make. Yeah. So, Um, you know, I, I think in the, it was interesting to me in the dissent, which was written by Kagan, she sort of stuck it, at least tried to stick it to the, uh, the, the majority after a pretty rough, uh, a pretty rough term for the, the three uh, remaining liberals on the court. She wrote, uh, the current court is textualist only when being so suits it. When that method would frustrate broader policy goals, special canons like the major questions doctrine magically appear as get out of text free cards. <laughs> that, that, now, that's actually but, a, that's but a snippet. That, out, I think the textualist reading, I don't think that gets you there either. Well, you know, yeah, I... I think it's uh, well, again, if you you know, it's a question that interplay right between the Chevron deference and the major and and now this new major questions doctrine. Of course, both of those are court created sort of sort of things, basically. And and there were there were hopes on the conservative side that that maybe um, West Virginia versus EPA would result in a out and out um, uh, slam dunk on Chevron. Yeah. And that didn't happen. In uh, fact, uh, a that lot of folks on the left and, were and saying, I, I, yeah. So I, I don't think that the facts of this case really presented a Chevron type question. Um, right. And there's probably another case out there somewhere that's going to tee that up a lot better. Yeah. But, and, and and for listeners who uh, might not be familiar with that, the Chevron deference is this idea that, generally speaking, the the interpretations and rulings of administrative agencies should be well deferred to as, as long as they're acting within their congressional authorization, essentially. So, yeah. And, you know, and in this case, we're saying that it's, it's beyond the congressional authorization. So you don't even get to a deference kind yeah, of issue. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, but, but the, as you kind of point out, the practical effect of this is not really all that great. And you know, I was, uh, I was actually talking to an environmental attorney, uh, uh, Last week when I was at my, my cousin's wedding, a guy who worked in the Obama administration, and he said, you know, it could have been an awful lot worse because the power companies are already basically doing a lot of what the regulations would mandate. And so a lot of folks on the left really who are involved in these issues are kind of breathing at least half a sigh of relief saying that, my gosh, it could have been a whole lot worse than it actually ended up being. Yes, but as as you read though on the the, the popular media, uh, there's this you know Supreme Court has declared war on the earth. Um, well, I think that's that's this is, maybe this is going to you know environmental destruction run rampant. Which I was going to point out 
again seems seems to be at odds with what the EPR argued about saying, hey, we're not we're not doing any of these rules, <laughs> you know. Um, well, I think that's but, a, that's but yeah. A, there's there's yeah. very much been this apocalyptic sort of. I don't uh, think so. I, maybe maybe that's your, no. Maybe that's your impression of the popular media as filtered through your social media feeds. But I, you know, I, I follow the, the the popular left center media, the New York Times, Washington Post, and that's not really how it was reported. Now, maybe if some folks on the right want to pull out some far left folks who are saying that the sky is falling, that's one thing. But but I would disagree with the characterization of how this ruling is being described in, in general so all right well all right. I'm, I'm i'm looking up the washington post right now as we speak okay um, all right because i think and i think vox also had a well vox uh, is vox is is definitely well you're left. saying you're, you're gonna say vox is too far out i mean vox is definitely a, a left partisan sort of they're not like a they're not a center left they're definitely like a left okay. left type of organization i thought you might call them center left oh god no they they were 10 years ago maybe but they abandoned that for rampant kind of partisanship a long time ago yeah i'm i'm deeply disappointed in vox for so many reasons but anyway they're, they're, they're like a smarter federalist i think but they're pretty bad anyway so yeah uh some folks will get that uh, reference but before we move on to the supporters exclusive portion of the show i want to take a few minutes uh not just to talk about a, a new podcast i'm really excited about but also to give you a little bit of a conversation with one of the people responsible for it uh, the podcast is called when the people decide and it is about something we talked about earlier in the show ballot initiatives you know the people behind them how they work or don't as the case might be and and why they matter i guess for better or worse depending on your point of view some folks look at california and say this is what happens when you have initiatives but so anyway it, it's a brand new podcast it's but it's being done by folks who have a lot of experience in political podcasting of uh, the mccourtney institute for democracy at penn state university they've been doing this democracy works podcast that i really enjoy since i i don't know years now um so uh the host anyway of when the people decide is jenna spinella and i met jenna back in 2019 at a podcasting conference in boston we've stayed in touch ever since and so when she told me about about the new show. I said, you want to come on and talk about it a little bit? We can have a conversation about initiatives and so forth. She said yes. And so uh, I ended up getting a sneak preview of the show, which was awesome. And so anyway, uh, I was eager to talk with her about it. And so I want to share that conversation with you, which is what I will do right now. Jenna Spinelli, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mike. Excited to be here. You know, I thought before we got into when the people decide, you could Tell everyone a little bit about you know yourself, your background, that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, so I am part of the team at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Um, the institute produces and, and has produced for several years a podcast called Democracy Works. My colleagues, uh, Michael Berkman and Chris Beam, have been on the politics guys before. Um, so there's been some crossover among our worlds are already. Uh, but my background is in journalism. I also teach journalism at Penn State, and I've, I've always been interested in narrative and sort of the, the stories of everyday people. Uh, and, you know, since I came to the, the McCourtney Institute, I, I think, as you know, uh, a lot of 
conversations around politics tend to focus on candidates and parties and, you know, kind of big national level storylines. But my interest has has always been in, you know, people working at the grassroots and citizens who step up and decide to take a more active role, become more engaged, fight for issues they care about. And, you know, those are the stories that I'm really bringing to life in this series. So it's it's in some ways a fusion of, of a lot of the things that I'm interested in, um, both from a journalistic, a journalistic perspective, but also from the, the democracy or, or politics perspective. You know, I, I hope listeners already have been listening to Democracy Works for a while enough. You haven't, you, you really should, but maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit also about how you sort of decided to split off uh, when the people decide and sort of how it maybe differs in focus from uh, a, a Democracy Works. Sure. So uh, Democracy Works is a much more conventional interview type of podcast. Um, each episode has three segments, um, an intro and, and a wrap-up that are done by my colleagues and co-hosts, uh, Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and Candace Watt-Smith. But in the middle of that is an interview that I do typically with uh, an academic or author, public intellectual, um, usually someone who has a book that's interesting to the, the topics that we cover on the show, things like polarization and parties and threats to and attacks on democracy and, and those sorts of things. So um, it's, it's very much, uh, you know, a conversation from the, the 10,000 foot view, right? So it's people who are studying these issues or, or commenting on them in some macro way. Uh, but when the people decide is is a narratively driven show. So serial is probably the most famous example of a podcast yeah. in this genre, but sort of like an audio documentary. Uh, I am the narrator and kind of the guide through all of these stories. Uh, each episode focuses on one, sometimes two um, citizen-led ballot initiative campaigns that have happened over the past 25 to 30 years or so, some do go all the way back to the 90s, but others are, are more recent that happened in 2016, 2018, um, things like that. Uh, but you really hear me and you hear much more from the, the kind of backstories um, of the people who are involved in these campaigns. So not just what was what was the, the, the political outcome and those sorts of things, but what was their motivation for getting involved? Uh, how did they do it? What were the struggles? What were the, the triumphs? Really trying to take a, a much more holistic look and I, I think a much more emotional look at these issues um, because particularly for citizen-led ballot initiatives, the, the people who are organizing the campaigns often put they're, they dedicate their lives to these things for several years. And so it's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, a lot of emotions, good and bad, up and down. And so we try to, to capture uh, as much of that nuance and that detail as we can in the show. You know, I, I really felt you've done a great job of that. I know I was totally sucked in, uh, in, in listening to that. And sometimes political conversations and gripping don't necessarily go, you know, hand in hand. But I I absolutely, the time just kind of looked, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's done already. Uh, I, that's too bad because I want another one. So yeah, uh, maybe we should get not super wonky, but maybe 
a little bit wonky. I think listeners would appreciate that. Yeah. And can, can you maybe talk just a little bit about uh, initiatives and referenda and kind of how big of a deal they are in the United States at this point? Sure. Uh, so it, it is interesting because uh, they really only happen at either the state or the municipal level. So they don't often rise to kind of national dominance. We can talk about some some exceptions that later if you want. But um, there are 26 states, so just, just about half of the states in, in the country that have some form of initiative process. And this takes several flavors. Um, the, the states that we focus on and the, the localities that we focus on in the series are states that have citizen-led initiatives. So this is where any resident of a state can you know, organize and collect signatures and work to get an issue directly on the ballot, you know, being certified through the Secretary of State and, and all of those things. Um, so that is the, the most open form of, of the system. The um, system itself uh, got its start in Switzerland, which was surprising to me. Uh, I would have said it dates back to, to Athens or, or something uh -huh. along those lines. But it's the Swiss uh, came to the U.S. in the progressive era. You can, you know, lump it in with some of the other um, small D democratic reforms that came out of that era. Um, and it kind of sort of spread, you know, most of, of the states, if you look at a map, most of the states that have citizen-led citizen initiatives are west of the Mississippi. So it's sort of like as new states were added to the Union during the country's westward expansion, uh, the, the citizen-led initiative was just something that was created as part of the, the constitutions in those states. There are... Um, a few uh, that, you know, sort of further east and, and in the south, um, places like Massachusetts, Ohio, Michigan, and Florida, um, but they are definitely the exceptions. Um, and then there are some states like where, where I live in Pennsylvania, and I think where you are in Kentucky, Mike, where um, this is all sort of a, a foreign concept, <laughs> at least it was yeah. to me before I started digging into this, this series. Um, you know, here in, in Pennsylvania, the only way that voters can uh, weigh in directly on issues is if the state, if there's going to be a change to the state constitution and the state legislature puts it on the ballot. So that's a very different process than California or Michigan or Oregon or, or Florida or, or, or some of the places that we explore in the series. So you, you mentioned that in Pennsylvania, it's sort of a uh, unusual or unheard of thing, uh, literally. Uh, I'm sure you came into this with some ideas, conceptions about initiatives, but, but also at least whenever I really dig into something, I always find myself surprised or, or having some of my ideas sort of changed or challenged or something. I'm wondering if any of that happened to you in, in, in all that you have done in the series. Yeah, I think there's there's two things I would point to there. Um, one is that uh, the, the people who organize the, these initiative campaigns, particularly ones that have to do with democracy reform or, or changes to voting or related processes like uh, redistricting or ranked choice voting or expanding voting rights in some way, they often frame it as the people versus the politicians. And I think there is definitely some truth 
to that. Um, the citizen-led initiatives are often the most successful when there is broad public consensus or support for an issue, but the state legislature is disincentivized to act for whatever reason. And in the case of these voting issues or these democracy reform issues, they feel that their power is is threatened or they're wary of the, the populace becoming too powerful or making decisions that they might not like, these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, as you talk to to experts and, and, and historians, political scientists who have studied this, it's not that cut and dry. There, there's a lot more nuance here. And the initiative is is not, in some cases, the best solution to get around a legislature that won't do what you want it to do. It can end up having, you know, doing more harm than good. Uh, there's an episode about the death penalty in Nebraska that gets into some of this nuance. And, and of course, you know, this, this seems like a, a simple point, but if if politicians and, and elected officials are not seen as serving the people, they're not going to get reelected. Of course, there's there's the incumbency bias and all, all the rest of that, but um, you know, it's I don't think it's it's quite as cut and dry as, you know, the people and and, and the politicians being diametrically opposed. Uh, so th the other point uh, is that I, I think as as political scientists have been telling us for some time now, there's an increasing uh, the the national political dialogue, the national political vibes, if you will, are trickling down to state and local uh, politics. Um, and I really had to check my own assumptions about that in this series, particularly with um, ballot measures that were voted on in 2016. I found myself asking people, well, did Donald Trump impact this? And the, the, the answer was always, no, this was, this was a state issue. This was a local issue. There really wasn't any, any impact from what was going on nationally. And there were, uh, several times when we were writing the, the scripts for these episodes where we would say, and in the same year, Trump was elected. And then I'd be like, no, we, we should, <laughs> we should take that out. There, there's no, you know, correlation here, at least that, that our sources told us. So, um, while it is the case that national politics have impacted a lot of, of state and local politics, it is not always the case. And so I tried to avoid getting caught in that trap in the series. Now, you mentioned the Nebraska death penalty uh, episode, which I, I get, that was that was so good. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about some of the other things that that you've done that listeners have to, to look forward to in this season? Sure. Um, so there the, the first episode um, tells the story of Katie Fahey, who led the um, ballot measure campaign to launch an independent redistricting commission in Michigan. And in some ways, her. Her story and her desire to to affect this change in Michigan was similar to the people who started the initiative and referendum process in the first place. So we sort of go back and forth in history. Um, one episode that, that feels particularly salient right now, I, I could not have, have planned it this way, but um, there's an episode about um, a, a municipal level ballot measure in Cincinnati uh, actually, two ballot measures, um, one in the 90s that restricted protections for LGBTQ people um, in, in, in the workplace and other aspects of, of public life. Um, so that that was passed thanks to a, a big campaign from sort of Christian right organizations. Uh, and then 10 years later, the uh, community, the LGBTQ community kind of 
rallied itself and, and organized to pass another ballot initiative to overturn the previous decision. So that, that gets a little confusing to right. try to try to walk through it clearly in the episode. But it really is a, a turnaround story, a comeback story. And, you know, talking as I sent the episode out to all the people I interviewed, they're like, wow, you know, I think that this is a moment given recent Supreme Court decisions when people of marginalized groups of, of all sorts feel that they need to really revisit some of these ideas of of grassroots organizing. There's this sense that, you know, the courts aren't coming to save us. The legislature is not coming to save us. We have to take this on ourselves. Uh, and so that is a story I think is is really powerful. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so where can people who, who are interested in everyone, you really should be interested. This is great stuff. But where could people who want to know more about the show and also I would say about uh, all the stuff that, that you and the McCourney Institute do, where, where can they, they go to find you guys? Sure. So uh, you can find When the People Decide at thepeopledecide.show or searching When the People Decide wherever you're listening right now. And you can learn about the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at democracy.psu.edu. And we will, of course, have links to all of that in the show notes for today. Uh, Jenna, th thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, thanks. For, uh, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Okay, so if you are a Politics Guy supporter, the rest of the episode coming right up. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite named cases, Biden versus Texas, which just sounds like, a, you know, yes, <laughs> definitely right. Uh, maybe a little bit more of our bigger thoughts. On I'm this. surprised that given given how it turned out, you know, given given that that matchup and you figure you who's know? going to win that yeah, one. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good point. I, but, I am I am I am looking at a Washington Post. Uh, now, now, again, this is a. Uh, uh, the opinion page of uh, the Supreme yeah. Court's EPA ruling says we'll do whatever we want. Well, yeah, I, I get one opinion piece, but 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 yeah. whatever. So, but uh, there there is another in fairness to them that the EPA's decision is the biggest one of all, and the court got it right. Um, the Washington uh, Post is not as awful as you think, Jay. Is all I'm going to say, but 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 oh, anyway. Okay. So, where well, we might talk a little more court stuff. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the the one six January sixth committee and some of the latest things that happened uh, there. And uh, that that should that should pretty much do it. Well, for I, us. I, I do think Biden versus Texas in this we can follow up next time. But it's important because it's sort of part of the trilogy almost of like Dobbs, West Virginia, and yeah, and Biden versus Texas because I think I think there's a common theme in all of those. Yeah, and we will, we yeah. will, we will get to that, uh, all of that stuff in the supporter segment. And so again, uh, if you're not a supporter, just a quick reminder, full episodes, ad-free, uh, run, I don't know, usually around two hours, at least when Jay and I do it, we tend to go on a bit. They're available to Patreon supporters, as well as to anyone who isn't in a position to financially support the show. If that's you, but you'd like to get all of it, just send me an email, mikepolitisguys.com. I will get you all set up, or even better, as far as we're concerned, become a Patreon supporter. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And now, of course, when you become a supporter, you get access to that Discord channel with all the updates and stuff on that constitutional amendment that I'm sure will be sweeping at least parts of the nation at some point soon, I hope. But anyway, uh, you can also support us through Venmo. We're at Politics Guys as well as through PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help if you share episodes on social media, subscribe, rate the show, anything you can do to get the word out really makes a difference. Thanks so much.